Well, I'm mindful that some of you who were educated in our region, perhaps out of town, might have gone to schools where there was only a dozen students, maybe 20. Is there anyone in that situation went to one of the schools where you were known because there was only a few there? I was um, blessed in some ways when I went to secondary school to go to a school that was well over a thousand students. And so in that context, it was very, very easy to be a little fish in a big pond and you wouldn't get noticed unless you did something outrageous or outstanding. And I guess you had to make a choice in that department. Some people did things that were outstanding and, uh, and became very good at sport or some academic pursuit and others did things that were outrageous. And in the context of that particular school, if you did something outrageous, it might have been your last day at the school because they'd say ta-ta and send you off somewhere else. One day, I remember in, in, uh, in the early times in my career at that particular school, uh, looking through a yearbook in the library, one of the yearbooks that were put together at the end of each year, chronicling the uh, activities across all of the disciplines and classes and whatnot across a year. And at the back of the yearbook were the photographs, and there were photographs of each class, and of course each year level was an enormous number of students, you know, great big picture with hard to identify people in those kind of pictures. And then further on there were photographs of those who had um, achieved something of significance in the course of the year, whether they might have played football for the first 18 or cricket for the first 11, or they're on the basketball squad, or they're on the school debating team, that was something to aspire to. Believe it or not, I could actually do that quite well. <laughs> and so it was part of that. And I wondered in that space, would I ever, would there ever be an opportunity for, for me, um, a, a humble student, to be in the chronicle yearbook, you know, other than in a class photo, what would I ever be able to achieve in that space it would mean that I would be remembered forever when someone scrolled back through the book in the library in years to come. It was a vain sort of pursuit, isn't it, really, when you think about it? I'm almost embarrassed to tell you. Except for the fact it did actually occupy some of my thinking over the course of a few years until, in fact, the great day did arrive. Because towards the end of my school uh, career, I, I never made the first 18 in football. I'd never played cricket with the first 11. Backyard cricket was my thing. Um, didn't um, play in the team, uh, basketball team representing the school. I could swim, but I wasn't a very competitive swimmer. I was hopeless at hockey. I could run, but I wasn't a gifted athlete. Um, a, a colleague of mine by the name of James Tompkins, a name that might be known to you, said to me one time, why don't you take up rowing? James Tompkins. And I said to him, James, rowing will get you nowhere. <laughs> Famous last words. Uh, how many Olympic medals? Seven world championships, I think. And so it wasn't rowing, but I could play volleyball. And I made the team, the top team in volleyball. And so the day came when the team photos were going to be done. And we were there in our volleyball uniform, messing around a bit as you do while we were waiting because volleyballers weren't the first up to be photographed. That would be, you know, the, the uh, f first 18 footballers and all those guys. We were way down on the pecking order 
And so we were messing around on the oval with the volleyball, you know, doing the volleyball thing, uh, when a ball flew off a little bit, uh, what's a good way of describing it, a little bit astray, and one of my team members, in a moment of nonchalant kind of vigour, just laid into the ball with his foot, like volleyballers do from time to time. And that ball flew from his foot straight into my face. And I had uh, the gift at that time of, you know, even a small bump on my nose, it had bleed freely. I ended up having it cauterised sometime later just to stop that problem. And all of a sudden, just as the photos were about to be taken, blood issuing forth down my face, onto the shirt, what to do, rush off to the nearest tap, put your head under the tap, cool it down, constrict the uh, capillaries, wash out the shirt as quickly as you can and get dressed and the photo, if I could show you and if I could find it, I would, it was the worst photo I've ever seen. <laughs> Fair dinkum. It, in some ways, it was a judgment on my vanity <laughs> because I so wanted to be in a photo and it's the worst you've ever seen. What an experience. I'd prefer to be remembered like that, though, than inflicted with what I think is a very cruel and unfunny convention. I suspect it's one of those noxious imports from America. Have you ever been to a graduation where they give out awards for you know, the most likely to do something, the most likely to become a lawyer, most likely to become a mob uh, boss, probably same award really, um, <laughs> most, likely, most likely to have seven children or uh, most likely to do whatever. I, look, this is a personal thing, but I cringe at those kinds of ceremonies because you just never know what's going to come next. And you don't know what the people who are the subject of, you know, the most likely to marry before they're 20, how are they feeling in that space? Are they accepting it in good humour or is there pain in that? And let's face it, they're meaningless anyway. Who knows what the future is going to look like? Just turn your attention with me to Judges 13 and I'll show you what I mean because if we have a look at Judges 13 as we enter another phase of the story of Judges, three chapters, the three chapters on uh, Samson, actually there's more than three chapters here, um, the, the Samson narratives, um, you would have to say, as you look at the start in life that Samson had, he would be very much likely to win the award for the most likely to succeed. And yet we know from the story as it unfolds, uh, it's a sad kind of end that he has to life. He started with so much, but he ended with so little. We're going to have a look at the passage here. Tim, you're going to have to drive this because I've left the clicker down there with you. Uh, so it's over to you. Let's have a look at Judges chapter 13. I'm going to read some of the, uh, the, the passage in parts and then... Uh, just spend a few moments unpacking some thoughts around this. Let's have a look at the first section here. Verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was childless, unable to give birth. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are barren and childless, but you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. 
you'll become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hand of the Philistines. We'll pause there for a moment. There's, there's some words in that passage that should resonate with us if we understand or have any kind of concept of what's going on in the broader scripture because across the Bible there are a select group of people whose birth is announced before their mothers actually gave birth to them and Samson is actually one of them. He's in some pretty exalted company. Think of Abram and Sarah to whom the angel appeared before Isaac was born or Hannah who was promised the birth of Samuel, or Elizabeth and Zechariah who were promised John before his birth, or even Mary who was promised uh, the birth of a son uh, when Jesus was born. When the birth of a child is announced by God prior to the event, one has to assume that God's up to something special, and God was up to something special here in the birth of Samson, because Samson is identified right at the start of his life as a saviour. I think the passage actually says the Lord will raise up a deliverer uh, uh, for you and that's a word that very much means the same as saviour. Here is Samson who is going to do something special for God. God is raising up a saviour. And it's helpful for us just to keep that in mind because one of the things that happens as we, um, as our thinking perhaps as cluttered with all of the Sunday school stories and whatnot of Samson and all that goes with that, we actually forget that God raised him up to be a saviour, an important role that he had. Verse 1 though, if you come back to it, is depressingly familiar. It says, again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's worth just pausing on that point for a moment too because that statement actually jars very very much with with what is common thinking in our world today Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord my question to you is this how are moral values established in our community nowadays largely we live in a world of relativism we define truth according to how we want to define truth. The community defines what's true according to what we want to define as true. Presidents define what is true according to what they t want to define as true. We live in a relativistic world and our community morals and values are changing and, and moving all of the time and yet here we have in this passage a statement about the absolute objectivity of truth. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Who actually defines what sin is? It's God who defines what sin is. It's not us. Community values over certain things change. They're very fluid and, broadly speaking, drifting away at this time from cultural, uh, sorry, from biblical values. But here we are reminded that God is a God of absolutes. Israel's evil was done in his sight. It's God who defines what is right and wrong, not us. And it's important for us to remember that as we think about what's happening broadly in our world of relativism today. In the book of Judges, the very last verse in this book, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says these words, In those days Israel had no king and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Isn't that a familiar kind of a statement? 
Do whatever is right in your eyes and that's okay. As long as it doesn't impinge on someone else, it doesn't matter. I remember a story I was told uh, years ago of a lecturer who visited a university. He was speaking to an auditorium full of young people at university and he was talking about uh, the objective nature of truth and he had a young woman who stood up in the middle of the auditorium and said, how dare you speak about this? How dare you try and put your truth onto me? How dare you tell me what's right and what's wrong? Because what's true for me is true for me and what's true for you is true for you. And the fellow stood there and said, okay, what would you do if I said right now at this moment that my truth said it was okay for me to walk down the aisle and rape you? And you can just imagine deathly silence and she stood and tears started to flow and she said how do you know I've been raped and in that moment that the the falsehood of relativism is exposed because there is such a thing as objective truth and God draws lines that we dare not cross Israel had crossed that line There's some remarkably good news in this birth announcement. When I was planning um, the series on the book of Judges, we kind of look across the year and and try, at least try, to identify when some of the key events are coming up, like Mother's Day, for instance, Father's Day, long weekends, all those kinds of things that have an impact. And so, generally speaking, I think, what are we going to talk about on those days? And originally, um, the birth of Samson landed on Mother's Day, and I thought, oh, man... That's going to be difficult. And so we changed the plan a little bit. We're going to try and do something else today. Um, And then while I was on holidays, Matt and Bethany got hold of the program and changed it, (laughs) which I will hasten to say was absolutely the right thing to do in the circumstances. No criticism. Um, Absolutely the right thing to do. And so here we are landing on Mother's Day with this story of the birth of Samson. There's some remarkably good news for us to talk about here on Mother's Day because this passage is a wonderful, wonderful affirmation of a mother. A wonderful affirmation of a mother. In fact, good news for all those who are mothers. For instance, who can tell me the name of Samson's mother? None of us. None of us know. I've searched and I've searched. There is not a reference in the Bible uh, other than to her being Manoah's wife. The Jewish Talmud, that's a collection of rabbinic discussions, uh, discussions by the Jewish teachers, uh, say that her name was Zalphonus. There's a good name. Any pregnant ladies with us here today? Zalphonus. There's a good name you could um, use. The fact is... You get a very nice present from me if you name your baby Zalphonus. <laughs> a very special infant dedication service. We would have to practice saying the name a few times beforehand. Zalphonus. The fact is, the author of the book of Judges did not think highly enough of this person to name her. But God did. God thought highly enough of the faithfulness of this unnamed person, this unnamed uh, woman, this unnamed mother, to visit her, 
to allow her to be part of his grand plan for the salvation of his people. God saw her faithfulness in a time of faithlessness. God noted her infertility and the pain that this undoubtedly caused her in life and he appeared to her in the form of an angel to announce to her the birth of a son. What a wonderful blessing that is for her. We don't even know who she is, but God knows. And if we want to make a really simple application for that, it's true for all of us, isn't it? We might think we're people of little or no consequence. In terms of worldly thinking, that might be true. But that's not how God thinks of us. God thinks of us enough to allow Christ to die for us, to reach out to us, to gift us with his Holy Spirit. What a wonderful blessing that is. God doesn't think of us as little or no importance. God doesn't overlook us like other people might overlook us. God engages with us and loves us immensely. We know uh, how Samson was to be set apart as a Nazarite, that is one who would keep the Nazarite vows according to the description of them there in Numbers chapter 6, 1 to 27. We often focus on that, you know, Samson was not supposed to drink wine and he wasn't supposed to have his hair cut and all that sort of stuff. But did you notice in this passage that Samson's mother was also set apart? Samson's mother was also set apart as a Nazarite to serve the Lord's. We don't know her name. We do know that God chose her and affirms her quiet faithfulness. Let's read on. This is a a very funny little piece of scripture. The woman then went to her husband and told him, a man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask him where he came from and he didn't tell me his name, but he said to me, you will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink and do not eat anything unclean because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. I was actually a little bit tempted to try and do a video, but my videography skills probably not up to this, to capture the humour that there may have been in this um, passage. And maybe this is more of a reflection on my sense of humour. But can you just imagine uh, this unnamed woman, Zalphonis, whatever, we don't know, going to Manoah and saying, you know, a man of God came to me, he looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. And how would Manoah react? Look, guys, you've walked this, right? When, you're, when your wife comes to you and says, oh man, that, you know, he was wonderful. And you're going, hang on a second. What is um, Manoah thinking in this moment? I wonder whether he, whether he was nettled by that compliment. And so, in response, Manoah prayed too, perhaps, uh, perhaps not so much out of faithfulness, but jealousy, perhaps. I suspect, perhaps, to try and manipulate the situation a little bit as well. Here's what he prayed. O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God, um, notice that he used that phrase, not an angel, didn't want to believe it was an angel, let the man of God you sent come again and teach us how to bring up the boy who is born Was it necessary for him to pray that prayer? Probably not, because God had given his wife all of the instructions that were necessary. Abundantly clear, not at all ambiguous. Why did Manoah 
have to pray that prayer. We could speculate that he didn't have a very high opinion of her capacity to hear accurately. We could speculate that he just wanted to hear it himself. We don't know, but he did pray it nevertheless. And then if we go on to verse 9, something funny happens here again too. God heard Manoah and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. Notice it was Manoah who prayed. Where did the angel turn up? (laughs) Somewhere else. But her husband was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, he's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. What was Manoah doing? Manoah got up. We, We can perhaps surmise that he was having a bit of a kip while she was out at work and followed his wife when he came to the man he said are you the man who talked to my wife i am he said so manoah asked him when your words are fulfilled what is to be the rule that governs the boy's life and work the angel of the lord answered your wife will do all that i have told her which is a polite way of saying i think we've already been through this She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, nor drink any wine or other fermented drink or anything unclean. She must do everything I've commanded her. And so, really, all the angel has said in this moment is, I've already told your wife everything she needs to know. There's no need for me to repeat it. Just be faithful. And if we, again, want to make some fairly straight shooting application from this passage it might be this not just for ladies but for all of us status and position doesn't matter one jot to god does it but faithfulness counts for everything i don't think god had the smallest stake in me getting my photo in that yearbook really big deal he would have been saying what does it matter But one of the consistent messages of the scriptures is that God doesn't look at the mighty or the noteworthy or the clever or the authoritative as the ones best equipped to do his work. He looks for those who are faithful. He looks for those who are available. He looks for people who are teachable. If you take the first three letters of those words, he's looking for fat people, faithful people, available people, teachable people, people like Manoah's wife, who was ready to listen to him. He looks for those who are prepared to trust, people who will accept what he says as truth, who will put aside their own vanity and desire for notoriety to be used faithfully in the hands of God. And again, and I say this uh, to everyone here, if you've never felt that you're a person of consequence in God's economy, don't let what other people might say or those lies that Satan might like to fertilise in our minds distract us from the message of the scripture and that is that God can and does use the most unlikely and the most unusual. And maybe it's time to stop striving and be like Manoah's wife who was faithful and obedient to what God had revealed to her. You know, we sometimes get in our heads, we've got to be certain things to be good in God's hands. But it's not true. This uh, passage would remind us that God is able and more often than not typically uses anybody. And if, um, if you would like some affirmation of that, let's have a look at Psalm 139 briefly that demonstrates this truth. For in Psalm 139 it tells us, 
You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I was fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. God thought enough of Samson to reveal his birth to his mother before the event. And so too, God knew you before you were born. None of us are able to earn God's favour. None of us are able to outwork him in service or impress him with our sacrifice. His call to us is to be faithful. Well, dear old Manoah, miffed as he might have been by the fact that the man of God appeared to his wife two times, tried a nifty little trick, uh, which we in our culture don't necessarily see. In verse 15, he said to the angel, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. He invited the man of God uh, to stay while he prepared a goat for him. I say we don't necessarily see this in our culture because... um, in the ancient Near East, this was a gesture of hospitality at one level, but it was also an action designed to try and assert control. You see, typically the way that people in the ancient Near East think, and not only in the ancient Near East, in the East uh, today as well, I'll take you there in a second, uh, would think about this is if you, if you provided some kind of hospitality or some kind of service to the gods you would indebt them to you. Think about it in the East today. If you've ever travelled to somewhere like Thailand uh, um, or or a Buddhist country, you might notice, and those of you who have travelled will have seen this for sure, outside every major building, public places, there's shrines. And people bring offerings of food or gestures of their uh, thankfulness. And it's done in the hopes that by giving they will receive. It's a a way of actually putting the gods into your debt. And so effectively that's what Manoah was trying to do here. Behind his action was, as the scripture says, as we see in a moment, a desire to glorify the messenger, as we see from verse 17, but hedging his bet in a way, hoping that um, we we honour you so that you may return the favour, so to speak. Does this make sense? He's tying, trying to work on this idea of reciprocity. You know, if I do something for you, then you are in my debt to do something for me. And so the passage goes on, it's on the screen there. Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord did an amazing thing while Manoah and his wife watched as the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, Manoah realised that it was an angel of the Lord. The next um, passage there, the next uh, few verses, I will paraphrase verses 23. Manoah said, we're going to die. And his wife replied, why do you say that? (coughs) Manoah says, because we've just seen God and nobody who sees God will live. And his wife said, well, if God wanted to kill us, we'd be dead already, wouldn't we? Why did he accept our offering if he wanted to kill us? And why did he say we're going to have a baby if he's going to kill us? How could we have a baby if we were both dead? Good point, says Manoah. That's um, David's translation of what you've got just there. But I don't reckon it's too far off. 
in fact, it seems to me to be somewhat consistent with the relationship <laughs> that there is existing with this couple. It would be really easy, uh, maybe this is a project for us one day, to write a screenplay characterising Manoah as the one who really wants to grab control uh, but had no idea what was going on and his wife, who we don't even know the name of, who is um, the level and the sensible one who is faithful and insightful in that relationship. Now that might, of course, be stretching the truth. We don't know that. But there's some stuff going on behind this passage that's rather interesting. The passage goes on to say that the woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him uh, while he was at Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. A great start to life. A terrific foundation for one that God was going to use as the saviour for Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. You know, as um, we've been going through the book of Judges, I've been really conscious, as I've preached at least, um, on many occasions I've spoken about how this passage warns us, these passages collectively warn us. There are examples here that we should not follow. There are demonstrations of behaviour that we should not emulate or follow in the footsteps of. Even, uh, even in this passage there are warnings, but let's, let's just talk for a moment about the grace. Where's the gospel in this passage? Where is the good news in this passage? Well, we've touched on some of those points already. Just three observations as we finish up. In this passage, you might have noticed that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines, but God had a plan to save them. At no point does Israel cry out, as they have in previous occasions. At no point does Israel repent. But God's still at work. And God's still acting. God is still working out His purposes. Now, the thing I've been reflecting a little bit on this week is this. If God only acted when we prayed what do you think might happen probably not much truth be told the reality of this passage is uh, reminds us and the grace that we find in this is that God's at work all the time and it's important that we pray and he encourages us to pray and he meets us in our prayers and he acts in response to our prayers but if God only acted when we prayed. God would be in idle mode a fair portion of the time, wouldn't he? He's always at work and we see that in this passage. Even when Israel was far from him, they were so lost in their sin, they didn't even think they needed to repent. There's a whole sermon in that, but we won't go there. God was at work even though God's people were not conscious of their need for God to be at work. And it's true for us, God's always at work. He's always at work always working out his purposes and not only when we pray that's not an excuse not to pray that's not a commentary on the lack of need or necessity to pray not at all uh, it just reminds us that god is always active and always at work we've touched on this uh, the second point we never do find out the name of samson's mother um, which is probably a good thing because it takes us to 
uh, reflect on how God begins his work in places of obscurity. God does, and we've seen this in Judges so many times, haven't we? He starts his work in the place we'd least expect him to do it with the person least likely to be the one that we would choose if it was up to us. He starts in human obscurity. He starts in places of hopelessness. He starts where there's no human energy, where there's no passion, no qualifications. And I suspect that he often does that because that means there's nothing that's going to impede his work. He just is able to work. And so we can be encouraged by that too. And you'll notice, finally, um, that throughout this passage, God puts some limitations around what he will do and what he will reveal. For instance, in verse 15, uh, Manoah wanted to offer the angelic visitor a special meal. The, the visitor said, no, no, not necessary. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord's. And then Manoah said in verse 17, we've got this on the screen, um, uh, what is your name so that we may honour you when your word comes true? And the angel replied, why do you ask me my name? It's beyond understanding. There's some mystery happening here. And again, it's probably true that Manoah was trying to gain some kind of power or get a handle of understanding on what was going on here but there is a limit to what he could know and in the same way there is a limit to what we might know about God and his character and who he is. Where's the grace in that? Well, there is actually grace in that if you stop and think about it. I don't know about you, but there have been a few people I've met over the years who, and uh, forgive me if this is a bit clunky as I say it, who, who are convinced that they have special knowledge about God and have had special revelation from God and have a kind of a direct connection with God and so therefore they have the right to tell others what God's telling them. And they do it with a great deal of uh, enthusiasm, let's say, sometimes. Not always married to wisdom. This reminds us, as we think about this, as we think about the grace there is in mystery, it reminds us that even as we grow in our knowledge and experience of God, there will always be stuff about God that we don't understand and so we ought to be humble. Because we are all on the same journey. And to tell you the honest truth, the more I study the Word, the more I think about these things, the more I realise I don't know. And certainly God reveals more to us and shows us more, but there will always be aspects of his character, depths of his being, elements of his personality, we will never fully grasp and that's good because it keeps us humble and reminds us that we are all uh, saved by grace and we are all ne in need of grace. Mystery ultimately ought to lead us to humility. Well, next, uh, next week as we continue in, in uh, Judges chapter 14 matt will um, will describe really well how to go about finding a wife for those of you who might be in the market um, there's some examples here that you can follow i'm not preempting anything but <laughs> say that again oh how not to find a wife okay <laughs>
There's an opportunity that you might have just missed there. <laughs> Never mind. Let's pray as we conclude. Lord, we give you thanks again, as we do always at this time, for your word. It's alive, it's active, it speaks to us today. It has things that are so applicable to our circumstances in life, even now. Lord, um, as we reflect on just what we've been talking about, you are a God who has shown us your love. You held out your hands and demonstrated your love to us on the cross. You've revealed so much to us. You've gifted us with your Holy Spirit alive and active in us, speaking to us, the voice of God guiding us and directing us, empowering us, equipping us. And yet, Lord, we balance this with the mystery that there is in you and your character. There is so much that we can know, but there is so much that we will never know. And Lord, today we collectively affirm that as good because it means you are bigger than us, you're beyond us, your capacity is more than we will ever have. And in that, Lord, we are then called to worship. We come before you now, Lord, and bow before you with humility, with uh, affection for who you are and a desire to worship you. Lord, we thank you for the way that you honoured this lady whose name we don't even know. You saw her faithfulness, you visited her, you blessed her. You have um, cemented her place in the book of life. And here today we were reflecting on that. Lord, we thank you that the praise and glory is yours and not hers and equally should never be ours. Lord, we commit ourselves again into your hands. We give you thanks for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.